My name is Don Blair. I'm one of the elders here. As some of you probably know, the message this morning is from our series on Colossians. It was to have been given last week by Micah Manningham, but he had to be admitted to the hospital on the day before. So Brian Hepp was able to share his message that was to have been today. Thankfully, Micah is always prepared well ahead of time and had his message all prepared and written out. And so we're able to do something this morning that I don't know that we've ever done here before. And that is that I am going to deliver this message, but it's not a message that I have prepared. It's the message that the Lord has given to Micah and he has prepared. We are thankful that Micah is greatly improved and he's continuing to recover now at home, but he's not quite up to being here this morning. In the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, the prophet tells us nothing about himself except that he was a prophet. So we know absolutely nothing else about Habakkuk. And one possible reason for that is merely the fact that the message is more important than the man. And you know, that's true every time the Word of God is preached. The message is more important than the man. So I would encourage you this morning, although I know it might be a little bit difficult, but you know, don't focus on me, don't think about Micah, just try to focus on the message this morning. So that's everything I want to say. You're all glad of that, right? (laughs) Um, Everything from here on is what the Lord gave to Micah. So turn in your Bible to the book of Colossians, and we'll continue our study of this book. Today we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. If you remember, the theme of our study of Colossians is surrender to Christ who is king over all creation. And no passage shows it more than the one we're about to look at today, that Christ is the king over all creation. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we pray now as we turn to your word um, that you would show us yourself, show us ourselves, and show us Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, and our head. And we thank you in his name. Amen. There we go. So in case you're wondering, today's sermon is not about a goat. It's about a lamb. About a spotless lamb. So goat, G-O-A-T, we know that is standing for the greatest of all time. And when it comes to baseball... Arguably, it could be the great Bambino or Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth lived a century ago, so not many of us were around back then. But a little-known fact is that Don Blair actually went to high school with him. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Remember, this is Micah. (laughs) Babe Ruth was an incredible pitcher. He pitched 140 games with a 
ERA. The only problem was that he was an even better hitter. So after several seasons as a star pitcher, uh, Babe Ruth started playing in the outfield so he could have more at-bats, and that's where his name remains legendary to this day. Ruth became known as the Sultan of SWAT, hitting a career 342 batting average. He led the league in home runs for 12 seasons. He hit an unprecedented 714 home runs in his career, a record that he held for over 30 years. He led his teams to 10 World Series, winning seven of them. He transformed the New York Yankees from a nothing team to a powerhouse. When it comes to baseball, Babe Ruth is the greatest of all time. Our passage that we're about to read today is like looking at the back of a baseball card. It's packed with a ton of information in just one paragraph. Only this baseball card that we're about to read isn't about Babe Ruth. It's about someone much greater. It's about the one who has always been and who will always be the greatest of all time because it's about Jesus. So follow along with me as I read first, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So like a baseball card of the greatest player of all time, these verses are packed with information about Jesus in just a short amount of reading. First off, we see in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. Jesus himself said God is spirit. We can't see him. In the Old Testament, God told Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And even when God appeared in another form, a cloud a pillar of fire, an earthquake, the people trembled with fear. They couldn't bear to look upon that which wasn't even God himself, but merely a representation of God. God is invisible, and yet Jesus is the visible image of God. When Jesus Christ came down to this earth, we could now see God in Jesus. Other religions have images. For example, Buddhists worship Buddha through an idol, an image of Buddha. Hindus worship their gods through shrines. New Agers worship through crystals. But Christians are bound by the second commandment, which says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. We are not to make an image of God. Instead, we have been 
given the image of God in Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. But if you're thinking, you might ask, aren't you and I also made in the image of God? I mean, didn't God say back in the very very beginning of the book of Genesis, let us make man in our image? So how is Jesus different? Jesus is the exact image of God. You and I are not. The book of Hebrews says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. You see, God made us in his image in the sense that we share some of his attributes. We can think, we have intellect, we have emotion, we have a will, but we do not share all of God's attributes. God is all-knowing. We are not. God is all-powerful. We are not. God is divine. We are not. We're human. When I look into a mirror, I see a skinny frame and a not-so-skinny gut. I don't see divinity. But when Jesus Christ steps in front of a mirror, the image that's reflected is God himself because Jesus is God himself, the perfect image, the real thing, not just a representation of God, but the manifestation of God. It's him. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15 continues, the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? For 2,000 years, the church has been very clear on what this means, and false teachers along the way have been very wrong on what this means. The New Testament refers to Jesus as firstborn seven times. Two of them are in this passage today. But in only one of the seven times does the word firstborn refer to birth order. That's in the book of Luke. When Mary gave birth to Jesus, it says she gave birth to her firstborn son. Every other time that Jesus is called firstborn, it refers to something other than chronological order. It cannot mean that Jesus was the first created thing because the very next verse, verse 16, tells us that he is the one who created everything. The word firstborn in the Bible is used to mean a couple of different things. It can mean firstborn in terms of birth order, but it can also mean firstborn in terms of status. In other words, the status of firstborn is one of power, prestige, and promise. God in the Old Testament chose Jacob as the firstborn son over Esau, even though Esau was born first. Jacob later blessed Ephraim as the firstborn son over Manasseh, even though Manasseh was born first. When Moses confronted Pharaoh, he said, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel wasn't the first nation born into existence chronologically, but they were God's firstborn in terms of status. They were God's chosen people. Back to Jesus. With the exception of the passage in Luke, 
that describes Jesus' birth order when he took on flesh. Every other time that Jesus is called firstborn in the Bible, it refers to his position of power, his status as God himself. This is important because from the Arian heresy back in the early church to the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons today, people have claimed incorrectly that Jesus is not the God. He's a God, a created being. They use this passage to say, look, Jesus was the firstborn of God. He can't be God. To which the correct response should be, read the next verse. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For by him all things were created. In other words, Jesus created everything. He did not create everything else after God created him. He is the uncreated God who created everything. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. In heaven, all that's out there, the sun, big enough to hold 1.3 million earths inside its core. The sun is just one of over 200 billion stars in our galaxy, which is one of over 200 billion galaxies in the universe and on earth. The atmosphere, perfectly suited for life. The oceans and rivers providing the necessary ingredient for life, teeming with fish. The land, producing vegetation, suitable for all living creatures, for you and for me. Who created all this? Jesus. For by him all things were created, visible and invisible. Everything we see, everything we can't see. The legions of cherubim and seraphim, untold numbers of angels who gloriously serve him. Who created them? Jesus. Verse 16 continues, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Kings, pharaohs, presidents, chancellors, prime ministers, the ruling angels, archangels, all things were created through him. The apostle John wrote it this way, all things were made through him And without him was not anything made that was made. After the Jews returned to Jerusalem from their Babylonian captivity, they paused from their work of rebuilding the city to praise God, saying, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And all this wasn't just created by Jesus, it was created for Jesus. Look at the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. 
which means Jesus isn't just the source of creation. He's the purpose of creation. It's all his. It's for him. Abraham Kuyper, the theologian and Dutch prime minister of the early 1900s, said this, and I quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. End of quote. He's the creator of all that exists. So if Jesus created everything, then who created Jesus? Nobody. He's eternal. Verse 17, and he is before all things. In other words, he's the uncreated creator. He's the uncaused cause. Jesus has always existed. Before you and I were born, Jesus already was. Before the patriarchs were born, Jesus already was. He told the unbelieving Jews of his day, before Abraham was, I am. Before the beginning of creation, Jesus already was. He's eternal. Jesus didn't just create the universe, he sustains the universe. The last part of verse 17 In him, all things hold together. Do you know that the slightest shift in our Earth's tilt would cause unsurvivable temperature extremes? Life on Earth would cease to exist. You know who keeps the Earth's tilt right where it needs to be? Jesus. The slightest change to the composition of gases in our atmosphere would snuff out life on Earth. You know where those gases came from? Jesus. If we took our most common atom, hydrogen, and we changed the mass of its proton, the tiniest bit, the entire cosmos would be destroyed. You know who designed the composition of every element in the periodic table? Jesus. In him, all things hold together. The writer of Hebrews says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He can do that because he is God. He is no ordinary man. He's more than an extraordinary man because he's not just a man. He's God Almighty, the greatest of all time. So in just three verses so far, we have several profound statements about Jesus. He's the image of God. He's firstborn in his status of power. He's the creator of the universe and all that exists. He is eternal, and he sustains it all. And it gets even better, because it's not just that Jesus is God. He's a personal God. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The New Testament has many metaphors to describe the church. We're called a family, a kingdom, a vineyard, a flock, a building, a bride. 
But the most profound one of all is this metaphor of the church being a body with Christ as its head. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, he describes this metaphor of a body and how each believer is to relate to and complement each other. Here in Colossians, Paul's focus is on Christ as the head of this body. He is the beginning. The church started with Jesus. And as the head, he's the central command center for the whole body. The body doesn't tell the head what to do. The head tells the body what to do. Everything the body does, it does because the head commands it. You breathe because your head tells your diaphragm to relax and contract. You run because your head tells your legs how to move. You eat because your head tells your mouth how to chew. Your glands to produce saliva. Your esophagus to carry the food down to your belly and your stomach to receive the food for digestion. Everything the body does starts with the head. In this metaphor of the church, Jesus is the head. You know what this means? It means you are not the head. I am not the head. The Pope is certainly not the head. The speaker on your favorite podcast is not the head. Jesus is the head, which means you and I are all accountable to him. Here at Northfield, our elders are our leaders, but they are not the head. Here's what the book of Hebrews tells us about leaders in the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You see, God has appointed leaders over the local church, but even they will have to give an account to the one who is head of the church. That means that the head of Northfield Christian Fellowship is perfect. The head of the global body of believers is perfect. That's good news because leaders come and go. But the body of believers, the church, is being commanded and directed by a perfect, dependable, eternal head who will never leave us nor forsake us. He's the head of the church. He is the beginning. Verse 18 continues, The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So there's that word again, firstborn. And once again, Paul is not speaking chronologically because Jesus was not the first person to be raised from the dead. The prophet Elijah raised the widow's son from the dead. Elisha also raised a woman's son from the dead. Jesus, before he rose again, had already raised a woman's son, a man's daughter, and Lazarus. Jesus is not the firstborn from the dead chronologically. He is firstborn from the dead in his status, his position of power. It is his resurrection from the dead that guarantees our resurrection from the dead and our passing into eternal life in his presence. That in everything, he, as the head of the church, might be preeminent. One might even say he's the greatest of all time. 
Jesus is not just God. He's an intimate God. He's the head of the church, the beginning of the church, firstborn in his resurrection power. But he's also our Savior. Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Yes, just in case there's still any question, Jesus is God. Back in verses 15 through 17, Paul described it. And here in verse 19, he summarizes it. Jesus isn't merely godly, as false teachers would claim. Jesus isn't merely a great prophet, as Muslims would claim. Jesus isn't merely an inspired teacher, as Eastern religions would claim. Jesus isn't merely just a great man, as historians would claim. Jesus isn't merely a God, as the Mormons would claim. Jesus is God, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And this is what qualifies him to be our Savior. Verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In our passage two weeks ago, we were introduced to a beautiful word that describes our salvation, the word redemption, back in verse 14. Redemption is the act of purchasing someone out of slavery. In other words, Jesus as our Savior has purchased us out of the slavery of sin and death, and he has given us freedom and life. That's what redemption is. Now here in verse 20, we're given another beautiful word to further describe our salvation, and that's reconciliation. Through him to reconcile to himself all things. What does it mean to reconcile? If you've ever had a seriously broken relationship with a spouse or someone else close to you, and then through great difficulty that relationship has been restored, then you know what it is to reconcile. The word reconcile literally means to change. When reconciliation happens, a change in the relationship happens. Enemies are changed to friends. Paul in the book of Romans said it this way, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. As our Savior, Jesus changes our relationship with God from an enemy to a friend. And he's the only one who could. The only one who could ever reconcile the broken relationship between holy God and sinful man is one who is both God and man. Jesus reconciled us. He changed us from enemies of God to the very children of God. How? How did Christ reconcile us to him? Look at the end of verse 20. Making peace by the blood of his cross. You and I were enemies. We were at war with God until Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. 
Jesus didn't reconcile us by saying, it's okay, your sins are no big deal. He reconciled us by the blood of his cross. He didn't reconcile us by sweeping our sins under the rug and ignoring them. He reconciled us by the blood of his cross. Jesus didn't reconcile us by giving us a pep talk. Try harder. Be a better person. He reconciled us by the blood of his cross. Jesus didn't reconcile us by compromising his own standards of holiness. He reconciled us by the blood of his cross. The blood of our Savior washed away our sins, paid our debt, purchased us out of slavery and set us free. And his blood reconciled us. It changed our relationship. So holy God can now look upon us and say, you are no longer my enemy. You are from here on out my child, my beloved, my friend. This sermon is not about a goat. It's about a lamb, the spotless lamb of God who shed his blood for you, making peace by the blood of his cross. So these six verses tell us so much about Jesus. He is God. He's head of the church. He's our savior. It's like a baseball card of the greatest stats ever. In 1932, Babe Ruth in his last World Series proved to the world that as a baseball player, he truly was the greatest of all time. During game three, the Yankees were playing the Cubs at Wrigley Field. Ruth had already hit one home run, and now in the fifth inning, he was up at bat again. The game was tied <clears throat> four to four. And he was being heckled mercilessly as he came to the plate. The Cubs fans hated him. When the count was two and one, Ruth stuck out his right hand and pointed toward the American flag that hung just beyond center field. Then he took another strike. So he did it again. He pointed out beyond the stadium a second time. And on the next pitch, he hammered the ball 500 feet beyond the fence and beside the flagpole he had pointed toward. The Yankees went on to win game three and game four. They swept the Cubs, and Babe Ruth had his seventh World Series win. As a baseball player, he was the greatest of all time. Jesus, like Babe Ruth, was also heckled mercilessly by the crowd, but it wasn't under the spotlights of stardom. It was under the dark sky while hanging on a cross, shedding his blood. And unlike Babe Ruth, Jesus' response to the crowd wasn't an arrogant boast pointing toward the park. Instead, he hung his head and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he gave up his life for you and for me. But three days later, he would rise again. And 40 days later, he would rise back up to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father as God, as head of the church, and as our Savior. Babe Ruth was the great Bambino. Jesus Christ is the great I Am, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Babe Ruth could really hit a baseball. Jesus Christ could split the Red Sea. 
bring water out of a rock. Reverse the course of the sun. Protect those in the fiery furnace. Shut the mouths of lions. Walk on water. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Feed the hungry and call out to us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All while sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, with the angels crying out around him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Jesus was and always will be the greatest of all time. He is God. He is head of the church. And he is Savior. Is he your Savior? If you've not asked him to be your Savior, then he's not your Savior. And if that's the case, then you're not yet reconciled with God. What's holding you back from repenting? From crying out to Jesus and saying, I know you are God. I ask you now to be my God. I know you are the head of the church. I ask you now to be my head. And I know you are Savior. I ask you now to be my Savior. To reconcile me. To change me from your enemy to your friend. He will do all of these for you. Because he's not just the greatest of all time. He's the spotless lamb who shed his blood for you. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of you, of Jesus, and what you have done for us. For those of us who do have you as our Savior, we thank you for that. And for those who have not yet asked you to be their Savior, we pray that today might be the day when that would happen. And we'll give you all the glory. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.